show brought to you by johnpiele.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's see, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to ask is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry? Just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, the Rangers win it. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, the team is mad. Sell the team. Coming at you live from Bogey's Tavern in Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com. want to welcome everybody to the show. Thanks for having a couple minutes to tune in today as we are literally about two, three days away from live spring training action. And listen, if you're a baseball fan like me, you got to be fired up, ready to go, ready to see the whole thing and just get going. Um, you know, obviously some things still going on as teams are still trying to just, you know, get all their players in camp and ready to go. Uh, I'm going to start out today, and, uh, you know, we do have some good guests coming on today. Uh, former Blue Jays and Phillies outfielder Rob Ducey will be part of the program about 5.15. And in the second hour, we got former Major League pitcher Mike Lacoste. And then uh, Val Mieski, a former outfielder for the Baltimore Orioles, will be joining us in part of the second hour. So, you know, lots of stuff going on. I obviously just want to get right into things. A lot of stuff to go over with my blog this past week because I, I really feel I touched on a couple a couple subjects that, you know, certainly are worth talking about, worth rehashing, worth, you know, having you guys listen to and perhaps comment, maybe call in, something like that. But we'll start out with the Yankees and obviously the injury to Phil Hughes. Doesn't seem like it's going to be that serious, but it will set him back for the next couple weeks. Um, you know, the, the bulging disc in his back. Um, listen, if you're a, Yan a Yankee fan, you got to be concerned. You're looking at Hughes probably filling a three or four spot in the team's rotation. And let's be honest, the other guys in the rotation are, are older. You know, you got Hiroki Kuroda, you got Andy Pettit. And listen, Kuroda's been consistent over the last several seasons, but I don't think you could really trust even Pettit at this stage. I mean, Pettit, a guy who you know, took a year off, came back last year, was back and forth between injuries, and 
You know, he's a guy that you want to be able to depend on, you want to be able to count on to give you 200 innings. But I don't know if you could just look at look at the guy in the eye and say, listen, I'm going to get 200 innings out of you. I mean, Kuroda and obviously CC Sabathia are going to be the big keys to the team's rotation, but they're going to be relying a lot on what they get out of Phil Hughes this season. And if Hughes, for some reason, is not able to start the season in the Yankee rotation, I do think they have to look for reinforcements. And as opposed to you know filling the issue in-house, I really suggest that they, they think about maybe getting a player, a pitcher, you know, a number five type starter to be able to throw some innings out there. And there are a couple options out there. And one guy that has, you know, had ties, I believe Brian Cashman has had conversations, you know, on and off with is former Yankee pitcher Chen Ming Wang, who has spent the last couple seasons in the Washington Nationals organization. You know about his injury history going back to the Yankees and everything he's been doing to recover over the last several seasons. But, you know, if the Yankees could get him on a minor league deal, just get him into camp, have him throw, you know, a full spring training, maybe he could become an option. And obviously the internal options start with uh, Ivan Nova and uh, David Phelps and maybe a couple other guys that, you know, aren't really on the radar, Adam Warren, people like that. But I do think this is a concern. And, you know, we talk about other concerns that the Yankees have because they've not gone out there and spent the money this year like they have in the past but I think they're, one of their biggest concerns has got to be Phil Hughes and his health. And I know all the attention has been brought and paid to, you know, Alex Rodriguez and everything going on with him and his recovery. And is he going to come back this year? Is he not? Kevin Euclid is filling in for him. Derek Jeter, the whole, the whole uh, ankle injury. You know, is he going to start the season on the team? The outfield, they got three left-hand hitters. Certainly lost a lot of power with Nick Swisher, Raul Banez, and guys like that. Uh, leaving to go elsewhere this past off season, so there are a lot of concerns. You know, don't forget to throw in the whole catcher thing. I mean, who is going to be the catcher every day for the New York Yankees this year? Is it going to be Francisco Cervelli? Of course, his ties to Biogenesis and everything going on with Anthony Bosch in Florida. Obviously, they have a lot of concerns, but I do think the issue here with Phil Hughes and whether whether he's healthy, whether the bulging disc in his back is going to require him missing a significant amount of time this year, I think is something that has to be paid attention to. It has to be followed very closely because I do think the Yankees, one of the things that they really have to hope to get if they want to be competitive with the teams like the Toronto Blue Jays and then, of course, the, the teams like Baltimore and Tampa and obviously the better teams in a league, which include the Angels and the Tigers and the Rangers and teams like that, if they want to be competitive with them, I think they're going to have to count on a lot of things that are givens to work out right for them. And, you know, one of the givens should have been and could have very well been Phil Hughes this year. Phil Hughes on the last year of his contract, he's testing free agency at the end of the year. He's obviously pitching for the big deal. The Yankees, I think, would have liked to be able to count on him for at least one good season here. And that's 200 innings. That's, you know, 15, 16 wins, everything that comes with it, everything you could trust that, it, you know, Phil Hughes is healthy. And he's shown over the last couple of years, if he's healthy, he's, he's a dependable starting pitcher. He has some ups and downs, but he's going to be dependable and he's going to give you innings. And if you're the New York Yankees right now, you do have to take a step back and start to question whether or not you're going to be able to get 200 innings from Phil Hughes this year. And if, if you can't, if he misses the first two months of the season, something like that, then I do think they have to replenish those innings somewhere and they have to be able to depend on somebody. And I think just giving the jobs to Ivan Nova and David Phelps and just running them out there and, and you know, pray that they're going to go and, you know, Ivan Nova is going to become what he was a couple years ago 
with the Yankees. I, I don't think you can really go on there and depend on it. And David Phelps, yes, you know, the Yankees have said very good things about him. He looked good in bits and pieces last year and has made the proper transition to being a major league pitcher as opposed to a guy who was just a prospect. But I do think the Yankees need more of a, of a certainty that they're going to be able to get the, the, the type of, uh, uh, you know, be able to count on these pitchers towards the back of the rotation to give them innings. Because you do have age towards the top of the rotation with CC Sabathia and Kuroda and, of course, Andy Pettit. And if you're going to be able to depend on those guys to go out there and give you 33 starts, 220 innings, I do think it's, I think it's a long shot. I really do. I don't think you can count on it. I don't think you can write it in a bag and, and pretty much put, a, put a, a seal on it. I don't think that's that much of a guarantee. And I do think that's a concern. So if Phil Hughes is out for a significant period of time, it's going to really you know, mess up the Yankees' rotation. And you know, to simply throw in Ivan Nova and David Phelps and maybe Aaron, Aaron, Adam Warren and just say it's going to be okay, I don't think it is because the Yankees are losing a lot of offense this year. They don't have Russell Martin's home runs. They don't have Nick Swisher's home runs. Raul Abanez, all the clutch, everything that he did for them last year. They're all not in the mix. And, you know, they're going to lose a lot offensively this year. They're going to have to win some games 3-2 to two and 2-1. Two to one. And while you can depend on the Yankees' bullpen to get the job done, you know, even with the injury to Mariano Rivera, I think you could chalk, it, chalk him up to his 30-plus saves, you know, being the guy that he was. He has shown – no signs of letting down from what he has been. And obviously he has been the greatest closer in the history of Major League Baseball. So when you got, when you, when you got that, you do got to get some dependability out of your starting pitching. And I think the biggest key for the Yankees this year is not what they get out of third base. It's not what they get out of Derek Jeter. It's not what they get in their outfield or catcher. It is what they get from their five starters. And they need to run out five guys that they could depend on to be able to give you 180 to 200 innings this year. And if they can't do that, then I'll tell you, this team might be in for a rough road. And I know it's tough to say. If you're a Yankee fan listening to say, hey, over the last 15, 17 years, everything's been a lock. You know, the team is getting to the postseason every year. It's a given. You know, some, just a matter of what they do in the postseason. I don't think you could say that right now. And I think that's, you know, I'm not going to look at Phil Hughes and saying he is the one piece that's going to take this team from a World Series contending team to a basement team. I'm not saying that, but I'm telling you, with the competition in the American League, particularly in the American League East, these other teams are clawing for him. And it's not so much of a guarantee that the Yankees are going to make the postseason this year. And if, you know, if it ends up happening this way, Listen, I, I think they're going to have to do something when it comes to, to, to getting, getting themselves some reinforcements. I do think a guy like Chin Ming Wong would be a good signing for them. If they could bring him in on a minor league deal, like I said, you know, let him get his full spring training, let him do what he's got to do, and maybe pencil him in in the fifth spot of the rotation and just give him about three or four starts to see if he's still got it. I think that's better than what they're doing, let's say, like a David Phelps or an Adam Warren. But, you know, other issues or other things going on, obviously you got the, the concern over Robinson Cano, whether or not the negotiations are going to go okay. And if they, end, if they end up not, listen, I think he's going to become a free agent at the end of the year and he's going to go to the highest bidder. But I think the Yankees got a little more concern right now as far as the immediate future or what kind of team they're going to field for the 2013 season and whether or not they're going to take a huge step back this year. Because... I, I, I think the Yankees have a lot of talent in their lineup. I think they could, they could score runs, not at the pace that they did last year, but they're going to need to be led by guys like Cano and Curtis Granderson and Mark Teixeira. And if they can't, 
if they can't do the job that they've done over the last couple seasons, particularly in the postseason, then I think the Yankees are going to be in for a rough road. And, you know, you hear today that the Yankees are going to switch Curtis Granderson and Brett Gardner. Gardner's going to play center field. I actually don't think that's a good idea because I do think they have to look at Gardner as a platoon player. They can't run him out there for 150 games, especially with the right field situation not guaranteed. You got Ichiro, yes, but he's a different type of player than Nick Swisher. And I do think the Yankees have to find a way to insert a little more power into their lineup, and that will include using guys like Juan Rivera and uh, you know Matt Diaz. And I know I know these aren't the sexiest names; these aren't you know franchise type of players, but those players put into the lineup at least about three times a week are going to insert some more power, particularly at Yankee Stadium where the ball flies and you got the short porch and right. They're going to hit a couple more home runs, and I think they're going to need it. I think they're going to need every last one of them, particularly when you got a catcher. You know, you don't really have a catcher. I mean, Francisco Cervelli, what is he going to give you over a course? You know, let's say he starts 130 games and you go with Chris Stewart and you go with maybe Austin Romine when he's ready. I mean, I don't think you're going to get anywhere near the offensive production of, of Russell Martin. Yes, you may get a, a batting average that's higher than 200, which Martin has given you know gave you last year. But I don't know if it's enough to win games and if it's enough to make as much of a difference to coincide or or to counteract what the Yankees are losing in Russell Martin. So I think there's a lot of concerns when you're talking about the New York Yankees and what they're doing and what they're trying to do. And I think this is a situation where there's been there's more of a concern right now than there's been over the past couple seasons. And I think it's something that really has to be looked at when we're talking about what this team's going to look like on the field. And they really could have gone without a setback like this with Phil Hughes. But let's be let's be honest. I mean, you're talking you're talking about situations. You're talking about things that happen over the course of off seasons and spring training. There's going to be injuries. There's going to be plenty of injuries. There's going to be uh, you're going to have to fill in for a lot of guys. And you talk about starting rotations where, you know, how often does a team run the same five starters out there for a whole season? It doesn't happen. And the unfortunate thing, you know, with that is that the Yankees don't have the depth that they've had over the past couple of years. And I think that's something that is going to be a concern because the, the depth is what has allowed the Yankees to get a lot of big wins, get themselves wins towards the end of the season, and getting themselves into the postseason. And I know the concern is what has happened, you know, in the last couple postseasons. But listen, if you don't get there, then nobody cares what happens in the postseason. And I think the Yankees really do have to have to watch out. They have to make sure they they they're very wise in the type of moves that that they make here because, yeah, I just don't I just don't think it's a guarantee. But uh, we're gonna try right now if we can was it okay all right i just got it in right right type the number in here yeah sorry about that reason no that's no problem and, uh, but uh you know i just think the yankees do got to watch a lot of a lot of things that are going on here and the concern for me really would be the depth and the yankees have had a ton of depth over the past couple of years Guys like Andrew Jones and Raul Abanez on the bench. I don't really think you can name one or two guys that you could count to, number one, assume a full-time DH role, and number two, to be able to fill in for somebody if they're injured. So I think, you know, other, other type of, of moves. Listen, I don't think the Yankees could really go out there and do anything crazy. Um, you know, I think a guy like Derek Lowe actually would be a very good signing for him, but I think Lowe is holding out for, number one, a major league deal, number two, a chance to start. But – 
I, I think the Yankees could probably get him on a minor league deal right now as, as spring training is starting, it's opening, it's getting going. Um, I think a lot, of, a lot of older players don't want to be sitting here not, you know, not playing. And uh, Derek Lowe, Chiming Wong, guys like that, I think those, those will be the type of players that the Yankees should be looking for um, right now. But listen, if I, I, I have, to, you have to go back probably at least about 10, 12 years since you know, the optimism that's usually out there for Yankee fans does not exist right now. And that's something that really is a concern and I think really should be watched over. But we're going to try right out here to reach uh, former – and actually, we probably won't right now. We'll, we'll end up getting into it in a little bit. But, um, you know, on, on to other things that don't involve the Yankees because, you know, a lot of teams starting to report for spring training and get going with everything. Obviously, you got the teams that, are, that had the better off seasons, the Toronto Blue Jays, the Los Angeles Angels, the Los Angeles Dodgers, teams like that, they're going to have a target on their back, you know, as this, is, as this ends up starting, starting out. And I think that I, – I think that I think you have to – you know, give those teams, you know, the chance to live up to the hype, but also every other team in Major League Baseball probably feels like they have a chance of some sort right now. And I think that – and I think that's something that has to be looked at this way, but, you know, we're going to try to reach out to Rob Ducey right now, former outfielder. He played for the Phillies and the Toronto Blue Jays amongst other teams. And Hello. Hey, is this Rob? Yes. Hey, John. John. Hey, what's going on, man? Thanks for having a couple minutes no, today. No, not a problem. Not a problem. Yeah, first of all, man, I want to offer you a little congratulations, man, of uh, being inducted in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, thank you very much. Tremendous honor. Uh, you know, definitely not uh, expected. And it's uh, a situation where, you know, all the years that I uh, played and been part of baseball, being recognized like that is a tremendous uh, honor, no question. Yeah, definitely, man. Especially in the in the in the class of people that you're uh, you're inducted with, you know, George Bell, uh. George Bell, <laughs> Tim Raines, Tom Cheek. I mean, they're all very very well known names, and obviously loved throughout the entire country of Canada. So it must it must feel uh, good to be in the same uh, you know mentioned in the same breath with those guys. Uh, being being found in that regard, it's it's tremendous. It really is. Uh, you know, you'd never set out for that, but uh, uh, just being thought of in, in that light, man, it's something special. Yeah, it definitely is, man. And obviously, you've had a you know a lot of ties to Canada from your days playing with the Blue Jays and stuff like that. And you know, you got to uh, play for Team Canada in the 2004 Athens Olympic Games. Uh, tell us a little bit about you know you know how you feel about you know playing baseball, being part of baseball in Canada for as long as you've been. Uh, you know what? I, growing up, uh, I had a tremendous love for for the game. Uh, I, I actually I started off playing fast pitch softball, and that was the big sport in my city. Uh, baseball wasn't as prevalent, but as the the Blue Jays grew and and their uh, uh, major league baseball was more exposed to our area, uh, the, I switched over to to baseball and ended up really really enjoying the game and i was uh, pretty much on the fast track uh, growing up in, in cambridge and starting at at 16 years old um, i played my first major league game at 21 uh it was you know really really quick so uh, when i look back at it it's a pretty neat story 
Yeah, no question, man. And before you know, before we get into what you know, what you've done with coaching and stuff like that, let's get a little bit into your baseball career because you know you made the majors in 1987 at age 21, but it really took you a while to be able to sustain yourself at that level. Tell us a little bit about the trials and tribulations of your first several years. I mean, you didn't really have like a full type of season in the majors really until 1997. Tell us a little bit about everything that right. was going on through, you know, through from the day you made your debut to the day you really became a, a consistent uh, Major League Baseball player. Well, if you look back at those teams, the Blue Jay teams, they were very, very good at that time. Uh, breaking into the Blue Jay outfield, you had uh, George Bell, Lloyd Mosby, and Jesse Barfield all three all-stars and, uh, you know, they're all, all premier players. So it was very difficult. There were a lot of really, really good players, not only on that club, but uh, the, guy, the guys that I play with in the minor leagues, the uh, Glenn Allen Hills, Mark Wittens, uh, uh, Derek Bells, uh, Sylvester Camposano, uh, very talented young, young players. And uh, I was, you know, fighting against not only – my organization, but any uh, outfielders that the Blue Jays did bring in, like a Lou Thornton, uh, he was Rule Five, I believe, by the Mets, or from the Mets to the Blue Jays, and he spent time in the big leagues at, at that time. So, it's not. It, it was very di- difficult at the time because we were uh, one of the best organizations in the game. Uh, so. Uh, that's where the roller coaster started, the up and down from uh, AAA. I, I had an injury and uh, dealing with that. Uh, uh, I'm very, very fortunate to have played as long as I did. You know, it was not easy, but when you love something and you have uh, some ability, you, you keep going until everyone tells you to stay at home. No, absolutely, man. I relate to that 100%. Once again, this is John Piel. I'm here with former Major League outfielder Rob Ducey. Now, was, was there any part towards the beginning part of your career, and I know you got you know, ties to Canada and everything, was there any, any point that you just w- would have preferred to be in another organization that would have maybe given you more of a chance to play? Let's say the outfield depth in a different team wasn't as deep as a lot of the Toronto teams that you were involved with? Uh, no, I really didn't. Never thought of it that way. I, I, I missed it when I left. I, I was traded in uh, 1992 uh, to the California Angels, and I really missed Toronto when I left. Uh, the, the, playing playing for that team, uh, it was in Exhibition Stadium, playing in, in front of 30,000 people a night, and moving over to the Sky Dome and playing in front of 50,000 people every night. Uh, that was very special, and being from there. Uh, I just, uh, I, I missed it. Um, I never really thought, you know, if I went somewhere else, I'd get a better chance. Uh, you know, the Blue Jays hold a very, very fond spot in my heart. No, absolutely, man. And, uh, you know, you, you could see it, obviously, with everything that you've done since then and stuff like that. You know, you end up, you end up in uh, 1995 going out to play in Japan. Tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about that experience, how, how that turned out, and if that prepared you in any way for your major league career afterwards? Uh, Japan was a unique uh, situation. Uh, We only had three foreigners uh, on our club. Uh, That was the rule at that time. And uh, you are there to help them win. Uh, You're not necessarily there as a teammate. Uh, You're there to help them win games. And uh, so my time in Japan was very, very lonely. 
uh, you know, you go out and you play the game and you go home. Uh, so it, it was, uh, my family wasn't there the, the entire time and, and it was very, very difficult. Uh, but I learned a lot as far as you, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn about, uh, uh, different ways of how to play the game and different styles. And, uh, I think that, that definitely helped me going forward, uh, as far as, uh, when I went back to the big leagues in 1997, I was a different hitter. I was a different player because of that. I, uh, I felt like all of the off-speed pitches that I saw and uh, just just playing under those conditions prepared me uh, to play at the major league level better. Yeah, no question, man. Once again, it's John Piel. I'm here with Rob Ducey, former major league outfielder. Now, you end up going to the uh, Seattle Mariners organization in 1997. They have a pretty good team there. They end up making a postseason. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. tell, us, tell us a little bit about that team. Did you did you think you were part of anything special with that team, or did it just seem oh, like? There, a... there, no, there was no question. You, you know, you, every day you walk into the clubhouse and it's uh, all stars, all stars all around the room. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr., Alex Rodriguez, uh, uh, Randy Johnson, uh, everyone that was a starter basically played on an all star team at some point in time during the course of of the year. And, uh, 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 it, it was, they, they checked their ego at the door and they came and played as a team. It was, it was a fun year. Unfortunately, you know, we played against Lamar in, in the first round of playoffs and they had a very good club and didn't get past that point. But, uh, uh, Seattle was a, uh, an excellent city to play, play in and a, a tremendous team to play for. Yeah, no question. And I, I enjoyed watching a lot of those teams just because, like you said, the amount of talent that was out on the field every day. Um, you, you, know, you get used to, for the most part, you know, in your minor league career and, you know, you're playing as, as a starting player. But, you know, obviously, you know, from 1997 to really your, your last year in 2001, you played a very good role as a, as a role player, a guy off the bench. Did you, think, did you think that there was a lot involved as far as transitioning from being an everyday player to a guy that's just used to, you know, getting one at bat a game, going out there, maybe being in a double switch or stuff like that. Was was it, did you notice a big a big change or a lot that you had to go through to become that type of player? Well, definitely difficult. Uh, going uh, playing every day in Triple A and you know putting up uh, relatively good numbers uh, yeah, each year that numbers. I was there. And then going and, and like you said, getting one at bat, getting one start every other week, uh, very difficult. Uh, you're going out there, you're you're facing the Rob Nens and the, the Roger Clemens, and you know the, those types of players or pitchers, uh, not easy, even for an everyday guys. So uh, I learned very early on. I was in the American League East uh, or in the American League for uh, the first part of my career and then I switched over to the National League I, and uh, the very first week we were in uh, Miami playing against the Marlins and uh, the first game the uh, bench coach came and said hey get ready it was like the third inning uh, and then he shut me down and said okay that's fifth inning came along hey get ready <laughs> seventh inning came along get ready ninth inning came along get ready well I didn't get in the game but I got ready four times and at the end of the game, at the end of the game, I was gassed. I was tired emotionally and mentally. And yeah, I probably, said, they got to figure this out. <laughs> yeah, you probably felt like you got in that bat like four different times, but you just don't remember it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I never got in the game. 
So uh, I, I, at that point, I said, hey, I, I got to figure this out quick because I'm not going to last. You know, this is, this is going to kill me internally. So uh, it was an adjustment. Uh, I believe that, uh, uh, you know, I, I did my, my part and every chance I got, you know, you, you go up there and you battle and, uh, and, you know, there was good years and there was bad years, but, uh, the approach was the same and consistent. And uh, I believe that's why I, I was able to last as long as I did. Nah, no question, man. Once again, it's John Piel. I'm here with Rob Ducey, former major league outfielder. Tell us a little bit about, you know, you ended up coaching for, uh, for Team Canada in the World Baseball Classic in 2006. Tell us a little bit about that experience and your feelings on, on the whole World Baseball Classic. Uh, playing for your country and participating in any of the uh, international events, that, that's been a, a very big highlight in my, my baseball career. Uh, uh, being on the Olympic team, uh, uh, whether it's coaching or playing, uh, there's something to be said when you have the ability to, to play for your, your country. And, and uh, 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 it's different. You know, you, you play in the big leagues and you play at the major league level and, you know, you're playing for, for uh, you know, paycheck in the World Series. And, uh, but when you play for your country, you're playing for, for your nation, your, your pride. And it's a totally different feeling putting on that uniform as opposed to a professional uniform. Yeah, definitely, man. Now, are, are you involved in anything as far as preparing for, uh, for this year's Classic? No, no, I'm not. Uh, I was uh, uh, working in me- Mexico, and I couldn't uh, uh, get away from that. And uh, unfortunately, I, I, at any given time or at any time that I'm available, I, I volunteer to, to do those things if, if I can do it. But uh, the commitment is, you know, it's a month-long commitment, and I, I just couldn't do it. Uh, but I do plan, you know, going forward to being part of whether it's their national program or, or their senior teams or anything uh, uh, to pr- promote uh, baseball in Canada, uh, I'll be a part of it. Yeah, no question. Listen, Rob, I want to thank you for having some time today. I appreciate you being part of the program. Uh, hopefully you can stay in touch and I can get you on the show sometime in the near future. Anytime, John. Thank you very much. And no problem, man. Best of luck to you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. And that was, that was Rob Ducey, former outfielder, played, of course, a lot of his career with the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, a little bit with the California Angels, Texas Rangers, Seattle Mariners, Philadelphia Phillies, and finished up with the Montreal Expos in 2001. And, it, you know, once again, the first thing I wanted to mention, it's great to, to hear him being inducted in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and, you know, with, with, a, with a class that includes George Bell and Tim Raines and legendary broadcaster Tom Cheek. I mean, a, a very a very good job, and listen, obviously we want to wish him congratulations and everybody that's going to be part of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, which I believe uh, the induction is within the next month or two. But, you know, great stuff there. We're going to probably take our first break of the, uh, of the program here. We're going to take a little bit of a time off, get some ads up here, and then we'll be back with a lot more going on in the past ball show after this. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And you know, we always see one or two 
accidents along the way. We wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609-927-9454 and check out their website, www.redroseautobody.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454. Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist. 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. MTR Media CEO Bill Zeltman. MTR Radio is the internet's fastest growing talk radio station. Our aim is to cover sports, news, and music, all while providing an entertaining radio product. We appreciate you making us a part of your day. To me, MTR Radio is the new generation of talk radio. Combined with our website, mtrmedia.com, listeners can connect with our personalities and writers and have their voices heard by calling us, commenting on our website, or in our Facebook discussion threads. MTR Radio has the best sports coverage of both New York and Philadelphia teams, and the rivalries are always in season on our programs. We have the industry's best hosts, and we make our programming interactive to make you a part of our show. Every day, mtrradio.com is the first place that I go to listen to and read the best opinions about sports, politics, lifestyles, and entertainment. Join me in making MTR Radio a part of your daily routine and share your opinions to be a part of making MTR great. MTR Radio is all about you, the listener. This is Bill Zeltman, and I thank you for listening. Catch me on Philly Baseball Beat every Thursday at 7 p.m. and MTR Sports Report at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is James Flippin, the executive producer of MTR Radio, America's radio station. Join us Fridays at 9 p.m. for Italian Hour. I'm Karen Siesca-Zeltman, and I'm always joined by Nicolette Trappiano. And sometimes by Anthony Campeggio. Hey, somebody's got to work. Okay, valid point. But we have fun, and we talk about lots of things like sports, entertainment, pop culture, Pretty much anything that's going on. And sometimes we drink a little bit. Uh, sometimes. Or a lot. All right. Join us again Fridays at 9 p.m. Italian hour. Welcome back. Passball Show on TR Radio Networks. John Pielli, of course, coming to you live from Bogey's Tavern. And listen, I, I want to get into a couple different things. We'll, you know, we'll throw the phone lines out there if anybody wants to call in. 609-910-0687. Get your opinion, whatever's going on in your mind, baseball-related. But I did an article the other day. It was talking about uh, a longtime Seattle Mariners broadcaster, Dave Niehaus. And, and uh, Niehaus uh, obviously was there from the beginning, 1977, when the Mariners first you know, went in there as an expansion team. And let's be honest, I mean, the team stunk for a long time. It wasn't until you know, the early 90s where they got a little better. And, of course, the mid-90s when they developed guys like Alex Rodriguez, Ken Griffey Jr., of course, and Randy Johnson comes over in a trade you know, for Mark Langston with the, uh, uh, the, the Montreal Expos. And you know, Niehaus really kind of kept, kept the, the people tuning in. 
And Seattle is an underrated media market because, you know, there's a lot of people there that want to watch sports. I mean, if you see what goes out there with the Seattle Seahawks and the amount of people that they draw up there and even, even with the basketball team, the Supersonics, before they ended up, you know, moving out of there, that they, they were always decent draws. And Seattle Mariner fans didn't necessarily support the team as far as going into Kingdom. And, listen, you, you wouldn't really blame them for it. I mean, the team was lousy for a long time. But one thing that I thought was interesting is amongst radio broadcasts, the amount of listeners that people tuned in to radio broadcasts, the Mariners were always up towards the top of Major League Baseball. And this was an era where they weren't very good. I, you know, I can't say it anymore. They, they stunk. And the, the amount of support that they got for people listening to the games and listening to Dave Niehaus and, you know, his, his, his patented calls, I mean, you know, really shows something. And, I, I, and really some of the points that I made in the article were along, along the lines of is he or could he be close to the face of the franchise? And if you look at Seattle Mariners, they've obviously brought in a lot of good players and, you know, from Ken Griffey Jr. to Randy Johnson to A-Rod and obviously Ichiro and even up to Felix Hernandez right now, I mean, they've had a lot of different faces. But in my opinion, I think, I think Dave Niehaus probably trumps them all. And the only one that I think could really have a chance is Hernandez if he ends up you know, fulfilling his contract, continuing to put up years like he has put up over the last five, six seasons, and he finishes his career as a Mariner. But you know, Griffey ended up, you know, ends up being traded. A Rod ends up leaving as a free agent. You know, Randy Johnson gets traded. I mean, part of it was was Seattle. You know, may have been Seattle's fault a little bit for letting these players go. But I don't think anybody stuck around there long enough where fans could just say, "Hey, this is the guy." And a lot of other organizations, and I compared it to, uh, you know, a guy like Vince Scully with the with the you know the. Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers, yes, he, he is a face of that franchise. But when you think of the Dodgers, even the L.A. Dodgers, you think of a lot of, a, a lot of players that certainly grab your eye, grab your ear right away before you start to think about Vince Scully. You think of Tommy Lasorda. You think of Sandy Koufax. You think of you know, the guys that played for the Brooklyn teams like Gil Hodges and Duke Snyder and, you know, of course, Jackie Robinson. So, you know, the history of that team doesn't really, it isn't really all about Vince Scully. You know, you could talk about the Phillies and Harry Callis and, you know, how the fans in Philadelphia love him and have always have appreciated everything he's done. But even the Phillies have got, you know, their name players, you know, Mike Schmidt, Steve Carlton, guys like that who really kind of take the face of the team away from the broadcaster. And really the question that I posed, is it possible that a team's broadcaster can be the face of the franchise? And I, I, think, I think it's something interesting to think about. And really with Seattle and Dave Niehaus, I think that was probably the closest thing to having a broadcaster be the face of a respective franchise. So, you know, whatever. You, you feel however you do about it. But I don't think there are too many other teams. And, and, and listen, part of it is because of the lack of success of the Mariners and their lack of ability to choose to hold on to significant players. I mean, you could say right off the bat that Ichiro Suzuki or Ichiro, however you want to call him, uh, is that type of player. But I, I, don't, I don't agree. Ichiro was great for the Mariners. He put up phenomenal numbers and will probably be in the Hall of Fame someday wearing a Seattle Mariners cap. But I think the, the following of Ichiro really comes from, from his fans, from his popularity, which existed way before he ever played a game in the major leagues. And, and you know, him, him being the star that he was in Japan and the way he was followed into the United States and the amount of media, the amount of people that will follow Ichiro wherever he goes – 
was not attributed to the fact that he was a Seattle Mariner. It was attributed to the fact that he was Ichiro. And he, he was what he was before he came to Seattle. Obviously had his great, great career in Seattle and will always be remembered for it. But in my opinion, that doesn't make him the face of the history of the Seattle Mariners. And, you know, a team that started in 1977 is going on, what, 35 years, 36 years? I, I mean, I think if you, had to, if you had to summarize the greatest members of the Seattle Mariners organization, I think you would have to start with Dave Niehaus. And, of course, you know, a couple of days ago was the uh, around – would have been, I think, his 77th birthday. He passed away in 2010, of course – uh, Dave Sims, who was, you know, uh, was was you know courteous enough to allow me to speak with him on one of my shows, uh, now now does the full time uh, broadcasting duties for the Mariners. Is the voice of the Seattle Mariners. And listen, I mean, he can't be Dave Niehaus. I mean, he he really had that type of impact on the fans and the listeners. And you know, to really get a chance to go back and you know what I do a lot, you know, I tune into old games whether they're on the radio or on TV, and I like to watch classic games. Uh, just really the, uh, the the whole aura that he kind of brings to it. He he's a pleasure to listen to. He always was, and you know let's just, you know let's just take a couple minutes to remember uh, one of the greatest one of the greater broadcasters in Major League Baseball history. But moving on, you know a couple days ago well, you you also had the uh, the whatever it was, and obviously I can't I can't get how it got so much attention. Michael Jordan's 50th birthday, and Michael Jordan of course you know made that one little effort. In the 1994 season to play Major League Baseball, of course, is always going to be known as the greatest player to ever play in the NBA, and I totally agree with that. But Jordan, you know, did, did take a shot at baseball, and, you know, a lot of different things, you know, contributed to it not working out. And I think something that was really, really can't be overstated enough was the fact that Michael Jordan is a perfectionist, and he expected to be that good. And listen, I think it's I think it's I think it's pretty hard to expect somebody who hasn't played baseball in over 10 years to just go out there, step on a field, and be anywhere near as good as Michael Jordan was as a basketball player. And Michael Jordan, in my opinion, did well. 127 games that year, he hit 202 with 114 strikeouts, had three home runs, 51 RBIs, uh, 30 stolen bases, and and he actually did a respectable job. And most most teams. You know, bringing in a new player who hasn't played in a you know played a, played a baseball game in about ten years would have probably started him out at a lower level, and he was playing for Double A, uh, the Double A Birmingham Barons under manager Terry Francona, and listen, a lot of people in his position would not have gotten a chance to start out at such a high level, and I think the fact that he was playing at Double A, his first shot in professional baseball, I think he handled himself well, and a couple things that really don't get don't get mentioned was the fact that he really he handled himself, you know, not like Michael Jordan playing baseball, but he handled himself like another player. And you hear from Terry Francona and a lot of other players that played with him that the fact that he handled himself very professionally, never thought he was better than anybody, never thought he he deserved any any better treatment. And the guy worked hard. He he worked to try to get himself to a point where he could be a big league baseball player. And I think if he gave it a couple more years, which I don't think Jordan really ever planned to do. I think it was kind of a one-shot or bust. If he, if he was that good, if he could get himself in the major leagues within a, a certain enough time frame, then I think he would have he tried it out a little long, longer. But if Jordan played, let's say, the next season in, in Birmingham to start the season, maybe made the move up to AAA you know, that second year, 
he he probably would have gotten a chance to play in the major leagues. Now, would he have, would he have been you know six time NBA NBA champion and all those MVP awards and the greatest baseball player? No, I don't think so. But I think he could have been a useful player. And that's one thing that, you know, doesn't really get looked at. A lot of people look at Michael Jordan playing baseball as like a sideshow. And, you know, what, what is this guy doing? He's a basketball player trying to play baseball. And uh, I, I don't agree with that. I think, I think that really Michael Jordan's biggest, biggest issue there was the fact that he was Michael Jordan. And he, had, he, he, in his own mind, his own opinion, he had to live up to something that he really couldn't live up to. He could never have been as good of a baseball player as he was a basketball player. And, you know, I'm I'm actually I'm glad to have to have, you know, seen him make that effort because I think he knows for himself that he was better off, you know, being the greatest basketball player to ever live. And, you know, obviously he turned 50 the other day. You know, a lot of a lot of us obviously have followed that. But moving on, I think a couple more things going on. And I do want to save some stuff for the second hour. Uh, the, The New York Mets are pretty much set to go into the season with pretty much what they got right now. We've talked before about possibilities about them maybe making a trade, maybe bringing in another outfielder. But I think I think you've hit a point where you're getting kind of, um, I guess, I guess used to what you're going to see uh, on an everyday basis with the New York Mets outfield. And, you know, they do have some good starting pitching. You know, if the catching prospect ends up coming up this year, you got an infield, which I think is is up there with some of the better infields in the National League. I think if you look at Ike Davis and Daniel Murphy, Ruben Tejada, David Wright, uh, I, I don't think I don't I, I don't think they'd be in the bottom half when you're talking about National League infields. But listen, I think they got their work cut out for them this year, and you know it's going to start with what they have in the outfield. And I think as you move forward, as you see them getting ready to play some organized games, some inter squad games, and then of course playing their first game against Washington on Monday the 25th. I think you're going to see this type of outfield that they got right now. And it starts, obviously, with Lucas Duda and left um, free agent on a minor league contract, Marlon Byrd, probably getting uh, every chance to win the job in center field for the Mets. And, of course, Colin Calgill, who was traded uh, from the Oakland Athletics to the Mets in a deal that sent third base prospect Jeffrey Marte to the Oakland Athletics, will probably get a chance to be the everyday right fielder. The Mets have a couple obvious you know, incumbents who have played over the past couple of years in Mike Baxter and Kirk Neuenheis. But I, I really do think that Bird at his best and Colin Cowgill, as much of a prospect as he was touted when he came up in the Arizona Diamondbacks organization and was traded as one of the key pieces for the Diamondbacks getting Trevor Cahill a couple of years ago. I just think that they have more upside and they give the team a better chance to win now. And I, and I do think it's funny because a lot of fans still want to just see young players. And, you know, let's be honest. I mean, what young Mets outfield prospect are we waiting for? The problem is they don't have any. And when we talk about young teams or teams that are trying to rebuild, there's always that guy. There's that, there's that guy in double A or a guy in, in single A that you say, hey, a couple more years, this guy will be up. Let's just, you know, keep the seat warm for him. The Mets don't have that when it comes to outfielders. They have pitching. You know, they have some other prospects that could play either infield, catcher, you know, maybe even relief pitchers. But when it comes to outfield, they have nobody that's waiting in the wings. So in my opinion, I, that's why I felt pretty strongly that they, they, they very, very well could have ended up with Michael Bourne, and it wouldn't have bothered me one bit. You know, Bourne is obviously not a star player. He's not a franchise type of player. But I think with the New York Mets, the way they're currently constructed, he would have been a very good fit. 
because there's a guy that's going to play every day in the outfield. And like I said, the Mets, you know, now probably have everyday outfielders in the way that they they are, are you know will potentially construct the team. And I think that's I, I think that Bourne would have certainly been a good fit. The Mets don't have a leadoff batter. I don't know what they're going to do. Whether it's Ruben Tejada leading off. You heard talks about Kirk Newenheis or Mike Baxter getting a chance to lead off a little bit. Um, I would be I would prefer probably Baxter over Newenheis just because I think Baxter is a better on-base percentage guy. And we've talked, you know, plenty of times on a past ball show about how much Kirk Newenheis strikes out. And I, honestly, I don't need a guy playing 150 games, striking out 230 times, hitting about 250 with about six home runs. I mean, if I'm going to have a guy strike out that many times, it's going to be Ryan Howard. It's going to be at the very least Mark Reynolds, a guy that's going to go out there when he's not striking out, he's hitting the ball 500 feet. You know, Kirk Newenheis is not that type of player, and I've said all along, which I think would be the best for Newenheis and the Mets, is if Newenheis spent one more year down in AAA. He's got options left. He could work on that one issue of striking out too much. And let's under, you know, he has to understand that he's not that type of player. He's not the type of player that can go out there and you know, strike out that many times because he doesn't make up for it with his, with his other production. I mean, he's essentially a singles and doubles hitter, who doesn't really drive in a lot of runs. He has very limited power. And, yes, he plays good defense, but as an everyday player, he cannot be striking out at that rate. And if I was him, I would be towards or in favor of going down to AAA Buffalo, particularly if the issues with the strikeouts persist. And I don't think it's something that's going to get better overnight. I mean, he struck out nearly 100 times in less than 300 at-bats last year, which is which is, is unheard of. It really is. Even in this day of age where you got the Drew Stubbses of the world and, you know, like I mentioned, Mark Reynolds, guys that sh- can strike out 200 times every given season, which you didn't see 20 years ago. Let's be honest. You know, the guys, you know, Reggie Jackson was like 150, 160 strikeout a season guy. So the amount of, the amount of times that people, players strike out has increased, and obviously the, 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 big, the big-headed strikeout guys are going to strike out over 200 times but not a guy that's going to hit about 250, six homers, 40 RBIs. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to see that. So I do think bringing in a Marlon Bird to play center field, listen, if Marlon Bird has anything left, I think the Mets will reap some benefits from it. And one thing that was encouraging is that he was hitting very well in, uh, you know, in, in uh, I, I don't know if it was the Arizona Fall League or down in, in Mexico or one of the Latin American countries, but he, he, was, he, he was hitting well down there. It looks like he's in good shape and hopefully is over the whole uh, PED thing that he had to deal with last year. And I still, you know, have really no idea what happened with that. Are we looking at a player that was always using and just got caught for the first time? I don't know. I mean, he had, he had some, some, some power years that you think could be attributed to it. And obviously, you know, the fact that he did get caught this past season – uh, you know, as a member of the Boston Red Sox after he was traded for the Chicago Cubs, I think makes you question, you know, whether this is, this is a guy that's just going to ride the benefits of performance-enhancing drugs. And if that's, if that's the case, then listen, maybe he's not so much of a fit. But I think on a minor league deal, let's be honest, I mean, the Mets really have nothing to lose with this. But at the same time, they do need some more reinforcements, and that's why I do think Sandy Alderson should be scoping the market. And I've mentioned teams before that have overcrowded outfields. And, you know, we started with, with Cleveland, you know, the team that ends up with Michael Bourne, has a couple, couple of everyday outfielders. One of them is going to be sitting. You know, I don't think they're going to DH Drew Stubbs or Michael Brantley. So, I mean, I, I would definitely inquire about that. We've talked about Seattle, whether it's Franklin Gutierrez, whether it's Michael Saunders. Uh, you know, a guy like that, 
you know, I, I would definitely be interested in trying to trade for a player like that. You know, you look at the Cincinnati Reds who signed Ryan Ludwig. You know, Chris Heisey is an everyday outfielder, and he's going to be a super pinch hitter. I mean, I, I would definitely inquire with the Reds about him, whether it's Oakland after trading for Chris Young. You know, they got Josh Reddick and Cespedes and Coco Crisp. I mean, you know, there's another team that has extra outfielders to spare that I, I would at the very least inquire on. And I think none of these players, obviously, I don't, I don't think any of the players I just mentioned are deal breakers. In my opinion, I don't think any of these players are going to totally make the team from, you know, like I've said, could probably lose about 90 to 95 games this year. I don't think it's going to increase, you know, decrease that to a point where they could think about competing for the postseason. I just think the Mets need too many things to go right to even have a chance this year. And I think fans have I – th I think they've, they've sat back and relaxed and realized that they'll accept some encouragement this year. And I think, I think that's really what you look for. I don't think – I mean, I, I, mean, I think it's, it's nice to have, you know, the first day of spring training and think of all the players reporting and dream of a chance to make the postseason. But, you know, sometimes you just don't have the roster – and when it comes to the competition in a league, let's be honest, a lot of teams are going out there and making the necessary moves to get better. A lot of teams are making that last acquisition for a pitcher or, or a position player to try to get themselves over the top. And when you're competing with the likes of teams like that, it's really hard to expect a miracle. And a miracle, let's be honest, was the Oakland Athletics last season. The amount of one-run games that, that that organization won, yeah, listen, it was a great story. It was great for baseball. Listen, we all like to see that team that doesn't really have much of a chance go out there and shock the world and win, you know, 95 games and win the, win the AL West when you got, you're competing against the Angels and the Rangers. But it doesn't happen every year. And I, honestly, to say that, that you know, a, a team can go out there and do that, I don't even think the A's or the Orioles, for that matter, can, can go out there and do that again. And I just think too many things went right. And when you're talking about the New York Mets of 2013, that's the type of season you're really looking for. To, to have uh, every home game be tied going into the ninth or tenth inning and a chance to win all those one-run ball games. And I just don't think the Mets are equipped to be able to do that. Number one, they don't have a very good bullpen. And, and number two, I just, I, just, I, just don't, I, just, I just can't really see the team going out there and winning that many close games. Because let's be honest, what, what has killed the Mets in 2012 and 2011 was, was their bullpen. Their bullpen was a, was a team losing games and blowing leads as opposed to going out there and winning those games in walk-off fashion like the Oakland Athletics and the Baltimore Orioles did you know, last year. I mean, you, you even want to go a year further a year earlier with the Arizona Diamondbacks, they kind of did a lot of the same things in 2011. Now, I, I do think that they developed a good core, and they ended up getting themselves in a position where I thought they, they could have taken the National League Western Division last, last year. They ran into some injuries. They ran into some disappointments. Uh, obviously, Justin Upton, who's no longer with them, obviously had a bad year. He's their franchise player. And the Diamondbacks took a step back. But I think I think you're looking at a situation where you know this is a this, you know the Mets. I just think they got too many things have to go right for them to have a chance to be competitive. But I uh, want to take a quick break for the uh, end of the first hour. Second hour, we're going to be speaking with former Major League pitcher Mike Lacoste and former Orioles outfielder Val Majeski. So we'll be back in a little bit. All right. So we'll be back. You know, one more hour to pass ball show. After this.